while speaking of that, do you remember COVID? <clears throat> I know you don't want to. But uh, yeah, so we were, many of us felt like we were kind of trapped in our home for a couple of years and um, interrupted all the rhythms of life, the rhythms of our church gathering. We've come out of that and uh, we're kind of reestablishing those rhythms. But I think what it's done for many of us is it's really caused us to come back to the question like, why church? Why do we gather? Why do we do what we do? Should we do what we do? And how should we do it? These are all good questions. And so in this kind of first fall series, as we are getting back and kind of reestablishing this rhythm of gathering here together as one church, we're, um, we're, we're trying to find answers to that question. Why church? What is God's design for this time, for what we do here together? Each of these weeks, we've um, kind of referenced that first day of the church because it gives us uh, a picture in Acts chapter 2 of what they did from the very beginning, which I think gives us some insight into the nature of what it means to gather well as the church. This is what it says, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is day one of the church existing. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we see here from the beginning, there were a few things that the church practiced together. And we've been looking through those week by week, one by one. But one thing we're told that they did together is that they gave of their possessions to one another to meet each other's needs. Nobody considered their possessions to be their own, but they used it to serve one another. The first church was marked by a radical generosity that really no one else had seen before. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked a bit about that, and, and, and we said, you know, there are all types of possessions. We hear that word possessions, and right away we think one thing. But we possess a whole bunch of different things, don't we? I mean, we possess time and energy and skills and professions and businesses and experiences and passions and personality. There's all sorts of different types of things that we possess that we ought to, as disciples of Jesus, see are given to us by God to view as gifts, as things that God has given to us to use to serve others and to carry out his mission in the world. And so we just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that we gather to serve each other using our gifts. And uh, that takes a whole bunch of different forms. And uh, this week, I just want to highlight one of those because I think it's really cool, a really creative way to live out using those possessions, those gifts to serve, to meet the needs of others I'm going to call up Nick, Nathan, and Andrew, three young farmers in our church. They're just going to be up here for a minute. Uh, this Sunday, in our family of churches across the country, is called Tear Fund Sunday. Uh, we're not going to, I'm not going to say much about that, other than the fact that Tear Fund is the name of an organization that, uh, that we partner with, which is kind of the relief and development arm of our family of churches that helps meet the material needs of people around the world. Um, Maybe you've driven down 236 south of town and on your 
east side of the road, you have seen a big blue sign that said rock solid project by a field. You ever seen that sign, rock, big blue sign, rock solid project? These guys are rock solid project. The third one left? The third one left. Yeah, okay. He could go. You're on sound. You're on worship team. You are stuck. Yeah. Uh, so Andrew Harris is the third guy, but he was with his little ones here in the first service. And uh, these are guys together, young farmers in our church that um, run the Rock Solid Project. So I'll just turn it over to you. What do you want to tell us about kind of how this came about, how you use your possessions as farmers to, um, to serve and meet the needs of others? Uh, thank you, everybody. Once again, I'm Nick. That's Nate. And Andrew went home. Um, maybe about seven or eight years ago, I don't know how many of you kind of remember, but there was a... Um, an offering taken up here at the Christmas project in the church. And that gave us our start. Um, We presented an idea that we wanted to do a project with Canadian Food Grains Bank as the big umbrella. And we would supply our expertise, our machinery, our whatever we could to plant a crop. And then as we sell the crop, we sell it like we would at any other elevator, when we submit all the funds, the government matches four to one. So it's, it's a good project. You know, it helps different areas of the world at times. And um, so seven years ago, we got our start. Nathan and the Tallinar family had donated some land, um, and we had two or three seasons out there, which went good. And then we, not that we were, went our different ways, we just thought we'd try something a little different. And... Um, we were looking for some funds and whatever else, so we didn't have the project going for one full season. Then the next season, we still said we wanted to try to help out, so Tier Fund actually, we had a meeting with uh, Tier Fund, and uh, they said, what can you do different? So we tried to brainstorm a few ideas, um, and Tier Fund actually came to me. At the time, I was selling some, some heifers through the cow herd, and they came to me, and they bought two bred heifers off the herd, so I run their heifers in my and there, this, when I sell the calves, the money goes directly to um, Tier Fund. Then, we were looking for land, and we wanted something with sort of visibility that we could advertise with, with a nice sign. And lo and behold, God works in mysterious ways, and Richard, youngstra, hi Richard, sorry I'm putting you on the spot now, um, he approached us in, two seasons ago and said, my tenant is no longer going to be farming this. Would you be interested in this? Because I knew you were looking for some land for the project. And doors got opened up. And last year, we had a bust. But funny, uh, this year, the saying that's been going through our head on the farm this year is what we want and what we need are not always the same things. Last year, we wanted a big crop. First year, big advertising. We didn't get that. But we got what we needed. We got... We ended up putting insurance on that, and insurance paid for a lot of it thanks to the drought, and we ended up giving a nice size check to Tier Fund indirectly. This year here, same thing. We wanted a big redemption year, and we got what we needed. I haven't tallied up all the numbers yet, but it's looking very promising, and it's, uh, it was very good. So the, in the long and the short of it is, we seed it, we work it, we do whatever we got to do, and then we donate our funds. And... Uh, Nathan was kind of the spearhead of this whole project, so I'll let him sort of say why we sort of picked um, Tier Fund. And, um, yeah. Well, I guess Tier Fund is the, uh, the associated relief, world relief group with uh, the BGC. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of how we got paired up with them. And we're quite excited to work with Tier Fund. Uh, 
they focus a lot on uh, empowering uh, local farmers where they're doing their project work. I think a lot of the work right now is in Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, so not only is it immediate relief when something happens, but they're trying to do a lot of education programs, uh, uh, just teaching a lot of the locals there how to become sustainable so that when the project that they're working on leaves, um, the locals are still quite successful and can carry on life in uh, an improved manner. So yeah. um, we're very excited about that. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, thanks guys. Um, yeah, so this is a rock solid project. So when you see that sign, <laughs> When you're driving south of town 236, you look on, on your right there, and uh, or I guess it would be on your left going south, you'll see that sign, and uh, just know that's what's happening there, right? It, it's, it's what we talked about two weeks ago. It's people using their gifts to serve, and um, that can take so many different ways in a group this size. It's exciting. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at one type of generosity. In particular, we're going to look at financial generosity. Um, and the kind of the title of this message is why we give together, what it is that we do, why we do it together, and how we can do it well. So, yeah, we're going to talk about giving money. And if you would have known that, you wouldn't have come this morning, right? Oh, but it's too late. You're here. And it's a little awkward to get up and leave. And plus, we locked the doors. So you're kind of stuck. Um, but, you know, but contrary to popular belief, most pastors... They find it quite uncomfortable talking about money. We don't like that because we know that can make some other people uncomfortable. And we know, we know the, you know, the stereotypes. We don't want to confirm stereotypes that the church is just after people's money because I don't really believe that's not true. But, but I, think, I think God is interested in your money. And um, so I was looking back in my files. I haven't preached on giving. There hasn't been a message here in three and a half years in this church on that, uh, which is actually longer than the whole ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was three years, and he taught a lot, and he taught about money a lot. In fact, 15% of all of Jesus' teaching as recorded in the Gospels was about money, 15%, which is more than heaven and hell combined, more than faith and prayer combined. So Jesus felt it was really important to talk about this, for obviously for a particular reason, and, and I think... I think that's because Jesus knew that money is one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful counterfeit gods that we can give our heart to. You know, in those verses that James just read a moment ago, in, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right? So when when Jesus wants to pick something that vies for God's rightful place in our heart, he chooses money because he knows how we're, he knows the power of that. He knows the human heart. He knows our tendency to try to find in money what we ought to find in God. And so, you know, he talks about these pagans, which just means people that don't know God, people that don't know God as he actually is. He talks about how their life it is just kind of filled with worry. They busy themselves trying to accumulate and keep enough to meet all of their current and potential and perceived needs for the future. Worried that they won't have enough. I don't know if you can relate to that. I can. I remember my first year of marriage. We got married in 
the range of 2002 to 2005, somewhere in there. We're actually coming up on our 19th wedding anniversary. I can't believe, that's crazy. I remember my parents' 20th. It's crazy. Um, but our first year of marriage, Eric and I, we went to this marriage course. Actually, there's a marriage course starting tonight called the Marriage Course. It's a different course, but a great course. Some of you are part of it. Twelve couples will be praying for you. But Eric and I went to this course. It was called Marriage on the Rock. And a part of this course was on money and how we dealt with money. And, and there I learned that there are four different money languages. Money means different things to different people. And for me, money meant security. Right? For me, it's like money doesn't mean status. You're not going to see me dr driving a really fancy car. It's not about status. It's not about success. It's not even about like using it to do fun things necessarily. Like for me, it's about feeling like I'm going to be safe and secure. Kind of putting my, that's my tendency. That's what I discovered about myself. And Eric has a different money language, which is why we fought a lot about money. And we still from time to time kind of do. We're getting better. Work to do. But I don't think I'm the only one. Right? Like, money means something to each of us. It may mean security. It may mean our worth, it may mean our success, it may mean the path to like, us to lead a happy life. But whatever it is, what Jesus is saying is, those are poor replacements for what God provides. God provides those things fully. So he says, instead, don't be like the pagans, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he will add all that you need to you. So in other words, Jesus says, make God's kingdom, his mission, your priority in the way you handle your money, in the way you give. Invest in that which will last for eternity. That's what he means when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, and treasures on earth. They will last there, they won't last here. Invest in things that will last for eternity. So that, that whole section in Matthew 6, um, Jesus is helping us try to combat the counterfeit God of money through generosity through giving. And even as I think about giving, I realize that, and, and as Jesus would often teach, motive matters, the heart matters. Why do we do what we do? Because there are different reasons to give. There are at least three different motives that can power our giving. Two of them are kind of faulty, and one is biblical. And one of them is, is greed-based giving. Greed-based giving says, I give to get rich. You ever heard of this idea? Some people think it actually comes from the Bible too, and they'll point to certain Bible verses to kind of support this idea that if I give to God, he will be generous, he will give more back to me than I gave, right? So generosity is actually the, the path to get more because it puts God in my debt. And people may have come to kind of believe that the Bible teaches that by reading verses like, well, let's say Malachi chapter 3, Verses 8, this is God talking to his people Israel. He's kind of upset because they have not been generous. He says, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you, God? God says, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and I will show you and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough to store it. Like just give and just see how much I'll give back to you. Test me in this. In fact, as far as I can tell, that's the only place in the Bible where Jesus, or where God says, test me to the giving. 
Test me. So some people read that and they go, oh, I think what he's saying is if I give, he'll give me more. This is like a get-rich strategy. Or maybe they'll kind of understand that in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6, when Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And people will take these as promises that God will bless us materially if we give. And so that, that can be a motivation. I want to give in order to get more. But the Bible doesn't teach that, right? That's not, that's not how it works. That's not a promise of God. Well, because first of all, didn't he say, seek first my kingdom and, and my father will add all of this to you? And then what does he say? I wish Jesus had stopped there, but he added another verse. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will have no worries. No. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Oh. Okay. So you're not saying, seek first the kingdom and give, and then, and then my future will be trouble-free. No, that's not what he's saying. Right? What, what is God saying? He's like, God is pleased to bless faith. When we give, we need to give in a way that expresses faith in God, that makes his kingdom the priority, because God has the ability to meet every one of our needs. God is pleased to bless faith, and when he does bless us more materially, it's not so that we can have it for ourselves and buy bigger cars and bigger houses and go on a lot more trips. It's so that we can invest more into his work. So greed may be a powerful motive to give, but it's certainly not a biblical one because even James said this in James chapter 4, verse 3. He says, when you ask for, for whatever it is, for things from God, he says, you do not receive what you ask for because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Why does, not, why does God not give when you ask? It's because your motive is wrong. You're giving to get rich. He's not interested in you getting rich. That's not why he gives. So that, that would be a faulty way of giving, a greed-based giving, a give to get rich. A second one is kind of like it. We may call it guilt-based giving which is I give to stay rich. In other words, if I, the first one is if I give, God's in my debt. This, this next one is like, if I give, then, then I'm not in God's debt. If I give what I need to give, what I'm supposed to give, um, I'll avoid God's displeasure. I'll avoid any punishment on his part. In other words, I'll pay God his due, right, so that he doesn't take anything away from me. That's kind of a guilt-based motive for giving. Paul will say back in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and man, if you go home and want to read a bit more about this, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's the largest, largest chunk on giving and money. It, it, powerful couple chapters. But Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You are not to give, you're to give from your heart, which is to say not reluctantly, not under compulsion. In other words, not out of guilt. That's not why God wants you to give, because that's still me-focused. Like greed-based giving is me. Really, it's all about me. And so is guilt-based giving. It's all about what do I need to give to God to just kind of keep him happy? Right? So that I can stay rich. That's still me-focused. I give so that I don't lose the favor of God. 
And we're not to give in a guilt-based way. But the third way is the way that Jesus commends. We may call it grace-based giving. Grace-based giving is I give because I am rich. Look at the words of Paul back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9. love these words. I love this way of thinking about it. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you kind of see how that works? He is rich. Like, I mean, he is the God of the universe, enthroned in heaven, all glory and honor. Everything belongs to him, authority over all things. And he left that all, and he took the form of a servant. You know, and he was mocked, and he was beat on, and he was hungry, and he was... And he tasted death and he hung on the cross for us. He became poor. Why? So that we who are poor, broken, sinful, needy people might know what it is to be rich. Through him and his poverty, we who are poor become rich. Did you know you're rich? If you know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you are rich. I mean, you need to look at a guy like Bill Gates and go, I feel sorry for that man. What a poor man. Now, rich here, obviously, he's not obviously talking about money and material possessions, of course. What is he talking about? He's talking about all the blessings that belong to those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And then if we could just make a list of all that is true in our lives because of God's grace that we receive through faith in Christ, it would be amazing. You would realize how rich you are. If we could just go through life in each situation with just a part, just a glimpse of all that belongs to us, through Christ, we would go through life feeling rich. The forgiveness of our sins, the, the, the promise of eternal life, the, the knowledge that we have the favor of God, that he, he promises perfect provision for us, that he has a plan for our lives, that we don't have to be scared about tomorrow and run around like the pagans worried about what's going to happen because God's got it. The knowledge that we can lead a meaningful life no matter what we go through, who we are, how rich we are, married, single, doesn't matter. We can lead a meaningful life and make an eternal impact. So many spiritual blessings that are ours because of the grace of God. We are rich in Him. So what is generosity? That, what Paul is saying there as he goes on is God's grace has made you rich and that's the source of your giving. That's what moves you. Generosity then becomes a grateful, joyful response to what God has freely given and what he freely gives us each and every day. It's the overflow of the joy we find in Jesus. And it's the way that we enjoy Jesus. It's God-centered. It's not me-centered. It's God-centered. And so you'll see back in Acts chapter 4, in describing that first church, it says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. God's grace was so powerfully at work that every need was met. What was it that motivated that radical generosity that you see there? It was the knowledge of the grace of God. It's because they knew how rich they were and they wanted to make a difference. They had a heart to serve God and to serve others. And you know, if, if, you have, if you're motivated by God's grace to be generous, then formulas don't really work. I like formulas. I'm a bit of a math guy. Formulas can make things easy. 
we have a tendency to want to reduce giving generosity to a formula. All right, just kind of, Rusty, this could be a lot shorter if you just told me what I'm supposed to give. Like, what's the formula? You know, greed and guilt ask that question. Right? Because, why do we want a formula? It's because we want to know what we have to give. Just tell me. What, like, what's the bar? What's this minimum threshold so that like, I know I've satisfied what I'm supposed to do with God? But, but, but you know, and I say that, like, that's, that's not something that's obviously motivated by love and honor or anything, is it? Because can you imagine if I said that to my wife, Erica, what's the, what do I actually need to give you? How much time do I have to give you? Two hours of quality time a week? Okay. Start. Two hours later, stop. Okay, great. See you next week. You go, well, hold on here. That's not how love works. That's not how grace works. It doesn't, it's not about what you have to give. It's about what you have to give, right? So the greed and guilt ask, what do I have to give? What must I give? But grace giving asks a totally different question. It asks, what can I give? What do I have to give? That was like the Christians that Paul describes at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8. He's trying to inspire the Corinthians with the example of the Macedonian churches. And he says this. He says, you know, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity... For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. You see the juxtaposition? Out of their extreme poverty welled up rich generosity. They didn't ask the question, what do I need to give? They, they said, what can I give? What do I have to give? They viewed giving as a privilege because they, it's God's grace was at work in their lives. That's what was motivating them. They didn't see it as an obligation, but as a blessing. Truly embodying the words of Jesus when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. They felt that. And for them it was a privilege to give what they could. So what I want you to know is God isn't impressed by a number. He's not impressed by a number. Right? Because like I know sometimes we think, man, if the, if, 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 if the people that had money, if rich people just gave, that would be good. Right? I'm not rich. Other people are rich. Interestingly, a study found that every, nobody thinks they're rich. Everybody defines rich as having twice as much as they have. So they asked people who had $20,000, that was their income, how much do you need to be rich? They said 40000 They asked people 40000 how much do you need to have rich? They said, I need to make 80000 they asked people that made 80000 how much do you have to have rich? They said 160000 They asked people that made 160000 how much do you need to be rich? They said 320000 My math doesn't go any higher than that. Right? But I know sometimes we look, and like these churches, they didn't have a lot. They said there was extreme poverty. God isn't impressed in the number. He's impressed in the spirit. He's impressed with the faith that inspires it. So if you think, man, I don't have a lot to give, Jesus does, God doesn't need a lot. He blesses and is pleased when we take even the little we have and inspired by his grace are generous. 
So, in the old, so I mean, all that to say, like, it's not about a formula, okay? Because we know the formula. Did you grow up with a tithe formula? And, and this isn't going to be a stop tithing sermon, and it's not going to be a start tithing sermon necessarily either. Because you know why? Um, yeah, the, the, the whole idea of a tithe, and if you never heard that word, you didn't maybe grow up in church, it just literally means a tenth. So God commanded his, his covenant people, the people of Israel, in the law of Moses, to give a tenth. 10% of their income they were supposed to bring to the temple to fund the ministry, the spiritual ministry, uh, to the people, to his people. Okay, so this was the tithe. This was a command that they all had to do. And, and so Jesus practiced that. And the Pharisees, people in Jesus' day, practiced that because that was the law. So do we have to practice that? Is that how that works? I mean, I was taught as a little boy growing up in church. Here's your, here's your allowance, Rusty. What did you get for allowance? Because I feel like I kind of got ripped off now that I think back about it. Like 10 cents? Actually, I think it was a quarter. A quarter. Here's a quarter. Rusty, now what are you going to do with it? I'm going to go spend. No, Rusty, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to give two and a half cents to the church. Yeah, good boy. But Rusty, how do you give half a cent? I'll give two cents to the church. Rusty, you always round up with God. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's probably good. I'll give three cents to the church. Okay, good boy. And you put some of that, and you save some of that, too. You don't spend it all on candy. I don't know, I don't know if you had a similar sort of upbringing, right? But, but I kind of grew up and, and, and with this, this tithe principle. And then, I, and then I grew up, and I read my Bible, and I realized that in the New Covenant, in the church, like, it's... None of the generosity you see in the church was in response to a law to tithe. Like that's not why they were doing it. It doesn't talk about that. It just talked about God's grace was so powerfully at, at work in them that they were radically generous. And so when I had my own come and my parents didn't have a say over what I did, then I really had to, and, and I really looked at the Bible and kind of understood this. I thought, well, now what do I do? I'd, I'd, been, I'd been kind of been given a formula. It was nice and easy. Now what do I do? And I, and I came to the conclusion, the, the whole idea of a tithe and, and this was part of the Pharisees' problem, we'll cover that in a moment, is what they thought is, I give God his bit and the rest is mine, right? God gets 10%, I get 90%. But what these people came to understand in the grace of God was that all of us belongs to God. That's why formulas don't really work, okay? Everything is God's. He has a right to everything. And so then I asked myself, okay, what, what would cause a person to be more generous? Would it be grace or would it be guilt? Would it be grace or would it be law? What would cause a person to be more generous? Well, I thought, well, surely it would be grace. Isn't that what it's, isn't that what it's saying? Isn't it saying that grace was the thing that caused them to be radically generous? Well, yeah. And that's what grace will do. Grace is more powerful than the law. It's more powerful than guilt. It will bring about greater generosity, not lesser generosity. And so I came with that, and, and so my decision for myself was, all right, then I'm going to tithe. I'm, I, like as, as a starting point, I, I'm going to use that which I was given. It's a biblical pattern, even if it isn't a command for the church. I'm going to use that as a starting point, but I'm not necessarily just going to stop there, because that's not how that works. If I'm able to give more, whether it's to church or to other places to support people and God's ministry, then I will do that because that's what grace does. One of the marks of a grace-filled heart is generosity towards God and others. Okay? So why do we give... So we're supposed to be generous. That's not news to you. But it's supposed to be inspired by God's grace. But why do we do it together? 
We haven't passed an offering plate in a long time. I'm not sure if we'll go back to that or not. As soon as COVID hit and we stopped passing the plate, we thought, oh my goodness. We started ranking the list of staff we were going to have to lay off in what order. Not really. But it was kind of like, if people don't have a plate put in front of them, will they even think about giving? Well, it turns out, kudos to you, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know that we need to do that. We have other ways, and you have found other ways to be generous, to support the, the, the work of the kingdom. And, and you maybe know what those are. But whether it's every week or whether you do that like monthly or every two weeks in your pay period or you know, at certain intervals in the year, right? You, you, we have our different ways of doing that, but we kind, of, we kind of give together as a church. And we establish budgets. We go through this whole process where we look at what we have and we look at where we are and, and, and the need and what calls, God calls us to do. And then we create this document that you as members are a part of shaping and affirming called a budget that establishes our ministry priorities. Should we do that? Or should it just be kind of like everybody just kind of being generous, doing their own thing? Why do we give together? Do we need to give together? Well, it's interesting what you see in the first church. And it's, it's really easy to miss, actually. But if you go back to Acts chapter 2, that very first description of the church, um, it says that all the believers were together and they held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And again, I am reading the wrong verse. I meant to go to Acts 4. I always get those two mixed up. They're, they're kind of related. Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Now listen to this. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the, what? Apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then it goes on. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who was called Barnabas, sold the field, and he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The next verse is, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife's fire, they sold a piece of property. With his wife's full, full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And so what you saw is that their giving wasn't just an individualized activity. When there was need, what they did is they took it and they brought it together. They combined it together. And there was a process there by which it was used to meet material and spiritual needs. And that's the way they operated from day one. I'd never really picked up on that much before, but that's what they did from day one. Their giving was combined and it was organized. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, he'll say the same thing. He says, when you gather together on the first day, they're already doing church on Sunday mornings. It's not a law, but it was the practice of the church back then, too. When you gather together on Sunday mornings as a church, each of you should bring a sum of your income and bring it and, 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 uh, and give it there so it can be collected so that when I come, I can take that and use that to um, meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. So already they were practicing this idea of kind of combined and organized giving why? Why might we give together when we could all give apart? Well, when we combine our resources on purpose, 
there are things that we can accomplish together that we all can't accomplish apart. We can accomplish more for the kingdom of God when on purpose we combine our resources, right? So when you give to any church, when you give specific, because I don't know other churches, but when you give to New Life Church, a part of what you give, and I don't know, I don't know if you know what it all does, but a part of what you give, like let's say, helps operate the Youth for Christ drop-in center here to help not just troubled teens, but you know, all sorts of teens experience God. And it helps people in Nepal who haven't yet heard the name of Jesus be introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, um, yeah, it, it helps buy the fishy crackers for the kids. In, in the kids' programming, when they come on Tuesday night to Kids Connect, and those kids from the community and other places come and they learn about Jesus, and it funds that youth ministry to help our young people get connected and to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. And it helps people's material needs when they don't have enough money to, um, to, to eat or they lost a job or something happened. There was a marital breakdown and they can't pay their rent. Um, and some of you are in the room and you've benefited from that. Um, it helps people who uh, just have emotional struggles enough where they need some professional help. And so there's a fund at our church that helps people find the help that they need in professional counseling care. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, and it helps maintain a facility that facilitates all sorts of gatherings that all have the, the purpose one form or another of spiritual group growth. It does that. It does all sorts of things when we combine that together on purpose. And we should all be interested in what happens with that and how it's used. And that's why you're all a part of the process. And we invite you to be part of that process. Something that we affirm together. Right? But when we combine our resources on purpose, we can accomplish more for the cause of the kingdom of God when, than when we're all just doing our own generosity. And when we give together, we guard against being selfishly selective with our generosity. You know, there's a psychology to giving, right? And so people who sent out magazines have figured this out, right? They know that what people want is they want to see something tangible, and they want it to be, they want it to be able to say, I did that thing. Because it feels good, and it does feel good. I did that thing. And so they sent out a catalog. We don't get many catalogs anymore, right? Do you remember when you got like the Hudson Bay Christmas time in November? You got like the catalog with all the toys? Our poor kids, they'll never get the, the wish book. How sad. They just go on Amazon.ca like 365 days a year. But maybe you get one of those gift catalogs from some great charity that has a variety of things that you can do, that you can help and buy gifts. And, and actually, as I've read about this, organizations who do all sorts of great ministry work, they found it a struggle because what they found is people want to give in a very individualized way. It's their tendency. And so everybody wants to give $5 to buy a chicken because it feels good. I gave a chicken to someone that lives in Nicaragua. Or $10 buys a pig, and that pig will go, and that pig will maybe feed a family and have baby pigs over in Peru. Well, that's, that's, those are good things, right? But what they found is everyone wanted to do that, and there was all sorts of other important stuff that people just were not moved to do because they were not as tangible and individualized, and I can do that one thing, Right? So they had trouble getting people to send money to support pastors who are reaching unreached villages in India and other places. They're having trouble getting people to like give to build a seminary that was needed to train and equip new believers and new leaders for a burgeoning church in Asia. Because it's a lot easier just to buy a pig and a chicken. Being 
selfishly selective in the way we give. And when we give together, we guard against that, just being selfishly selective with our generosity, and we combine our resources to accomplish things that individually we would not or maybe could not do. Grace giving isn't just me giving, it's we giving, right? So there are reasons why we give together, and there are reasons why that first church gave together, right? Joseph, Cyrus, Barnabas, three names, how confusing. Speak of names, did anyone see the cover of Stonewall newspaper this week? With Rusty the horse? <laughs> Sorry, that was an aside. It was, it just, I was, it hurt my heart to see that. You know what Barnabas does, he, he didn't say, there's that need over there, I'm going to sell it, and then he walked over to that person and then gave it to them. That would have been fine. But, but they thought it was better to have a system. So they developed a system. And so they came and they brought it and they put it at the disciples' feet and there were processes by which needs were met. So people didn't fall through the gaps. All needs were met. How do we do this well? Well, just in the last few minutes here, just three things I want to suggest to you, okay, to be. Number one, be a systematic giver. A systematic giver, which means giving on purpose. Plan to give. You know, we, we plan for the things that are important to us, right? Our, our, you know how much time and effort I put into planning trips? most of which never happen. We plan for our retirement. You know, we kind of plan our bill, all of that. Um, do we plan to give? Is it something we thought about in advance and, and decided about? Because giving is a discipline. It's a discipline. It's interesting. Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 6, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know if you ever thought of that, but I would have expected where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But he said, where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be. So your heart will follow your treasure. If you want to move your heart, move your treasure. Giving is, is both a thermometer and a thermostat. So if you go to a wall, a thermometer, it shows you the temperature in the room right now. Money does a great job. How you, how you treat your money says, says a lot about the temperature of your heart. It just kind of shows your heart. But, but it's not just a, thermo, a thermometer, it's a thermostat. You go in a thermostat, it's actually, I actually adjusts the temperature. I can make it warmer in here. I can click it up. And what Jesus is saying when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is if you, if, if you move your treasure, you'll move your heart. You can change the temperature in the way that you plan, you exercise the discipline of giving. In other words, don't just wait until you desire to give. You know, you heard what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, God loves a cheerful giver. No one should give out of compulsion or reluctantly. Well, I, I have yet to be cheerful. When I wake up one day and I'm going to be cheerful, I'm going to give. But to be honest, I, I just, I haven't been cheerful yet. But I'm open to it. What Jesus is saying is, don't wait for your desire to give, to be there. Create a desire. Give and your desire will grow. Your heart will follow your treasure. Be a systematic giver. So what does that mean to you? I'm not going to give you a formula. I don't think the Bible commands a formula or maybe even commends a formula to you. But what I would say is maybe you're already doing this. Pick a number. Pick a percentage of your income. Reevaluate it from time to time as life changes. Plan to give. Ask yourself, what is a faith number? 
What is a grace number? What's a priority number? And maybe you want to follow the tithe pattern, right? As, as, because it is a biblical practice that you say, you know what, I think I'm going to give that a try. That's great. But, but if that's not something that you think you can do, just pick a number. Have faith. Be motivated by grace. And priority means first. Give that first. Be a systematic giver. Be a spontaneous giver, secondly. You know, even if you're a systematic giver, from time to time, needs are going to arise, right? Someone around you, you hear something in church or somewhere else, so there's a need, there's a neighbor, whatever. From time to time, a need is going to arise. Respond with generosity as you are able. You see, the, the problem Jesus had with the Pharisees, one of them was they were systematic givers, but they were not spiritual givers, because they were not, they, they were not spontaneous givers. They had, they, had this, they had decided a tenth, a tithe, um, and then kind of once they were done with that, they were just, they felt like they had satisfied God's demands, and they were done. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23. He takes exception with that. He says to the Pharisees, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, that's great that you want to make sure that you give exactly 10% of your dill and not an ounce too less of dill. Good for you. But don't think that when you've kind of done your thing, that you're done. When you walk down the street and there's that destitute person, that lame man who needs help, don't say, I already did my bit. What can you do? Right? The law, he says, ultimately is not about a tithe. He said, Jesus says it's about justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's the heart of what God is all about. So keep practicing the former, but also practice the latter. Generosity when there is need around you. So be systematic, but also be spontaneous because grace causes us to ask not what do I have to give, but what do I have to give? Be led by God's Spirit. As you are able and needs arise, give what you can give. So we're called to be both systematic and spontaneous givers. I believe, and the last thing I just want to say here is teach your children to do the same. Some of us, we've got kids in our home. Right? It's our responsibility as parents to model and, and instruct our children in the ways of generosity. What would that look like, parents? I don't know if we give like allowances anymore. Right? We, we don't really handle cash anymore. We rarely ever have cash. But maybe as parents, you want to kind of set aside, like, I'm going to give my kid allowance because I want to, I want to teach my kid. Yeah, I want to teach him how to save, but I want to teach my kid that it's important to give. I want to grow in them and, and why, why it's important to give, right? So that they will be people too that are systematic and spontaneous givers. How, parents, how can you empower generosity in your children so that they see it not as an obligation but as a privilege, something that is celebrated, something that is wonderful? We need to teach our children to be generous by modeling that ourselves what we show and how we act and how we talk, but also in the way that we instruct 
them and help them handle the little they have. So church, in closing, you, if you know Jesus, are rich. And I, I, I hope that you leave here being reminded in some way of like, all that is yours because of the grace of God. You are rich in Jesus. And because we are rich, we are generous. That's why. So, I'm going to give you a final question, but it's... Uh, um, let, let me read one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I think it's on the screen. Put it up there, Christian. Paul says this, But since you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. So the question, I think, for all of us to, to ponder, and, and as a whole church too, is what would it look like for you to excel in the grace of giving? That's a great question to take home if you're going to be around a lunch table with a spouse or with family. A great thing to talk about together because those are decisions we make together as families. What would it look like for you to excel in the grace of giving? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for all that you freely give us through your Son, Jesus. Lord, if we could just um, count all the blessings that are ours through faith in your Son, um, we would leave here and we would enter every situation feeling rich. We thank you, God, that you love us You've brought us into fellowship with you. You have forgiven our sins and relieved us of the burden of guilt. You've given us the promise of eternal life, the knowledge that there's nothing that can happen tomorrow or next month or next year or next decade that can separate us from the love of God that is in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that you have given us gifts that we can use to make eternal impact that we can have treasure in heaven, that we can bring others with us, that we can build up other people around us and in other parts of the world and make, and make heaven a, a fuller place. Lord, would you speak to each one of us um, and just show us, God, the answer to that question. In light of our riches, through your grace, would you show us what it would look like for us to excel in the grace of giving, Lord, so that we can like, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and, and we can make a greater name for yourself and we can give you more glory. Just, Father, would you inspire us to seek your kingdom first? We count that a privilege. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.